Hey guys, thanks for stopping by our stats today. We've got Livy. Hey. We've got Adam. Hello. And I'm Seth. Adam, why did you sound surprised? I'm really concerned about how we synced the audio because you guys were a <laughs> full digit behind me on every number. <laughs> Isn't that what happened last time though? No, I thought I heard you guys like I thought we were close. We were close. You know, I had to eyeball it, but I we think were close, we're close yeah, this time. <laughs> yeah, we'll work it out. I was gonna say, at, per our discussion before recording this, I don't think that we can start bashing the programs that we're using for fear of they may one day be sponsors, but we don't know. I've never heard of our editing software, recording <laughs> software, being a sponsor on a podcast. But and if they were, their time? software is free, so. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, the recording from the Muse score of the soft music, the recording software industry. Hey, Muse score, just, I forget what they did. They did something where it was like, eh, this, you can't download for free anymore or something. Oh, what? Weird. There was, there was some change that they made recently where they were like, hey, you've got a week. You better figure all your stuff out because we're shutting that part down. Who knows? Interesting. But I don't remember. Um, anyways, guys, today we're going to do a four-part episode, so this is going to be the start of part one. It's going to be general thoughts, what's going on with our weeks, other things like that. Part two, we're going to look at Barbara Bleige's three multifaceted compositions. That's coming from Music Theory Online, which is a part of, it's the online part of Society for Music Theory. So we're reviewing, uh, articles. Then we're going to move on to Jennifer Beaver's Beyond Mere Novelty, which is going to be part three. And then part four, we're going to look at Ben Dunker's Plateau Loops and Hybrid Tonics. So after this, feel free to jump around or if you want to listen to them in order, like we're happy to have you. So general thoughts, guys, how's your week's been going? What's today? Good. Is it Thursday? It is Thursday. It's very hard to keep track. Why? Is there some cultural event that... Yeah, we record these <laughs> at a delicate time. <laughs> I was say, I'm still like... I am an essential worker, so I'm still going in and stuff, but still, it's hard to keep track. There's like no structure to life. Yeah, I get that. I realized the other day that... Um, how did I put it? Well, for a while, I was just working on my thesis. I wasn't working very much, because I put... I put that aside so I could focus on school and finish my thesis, which involved a lot of sitting around or going to the library and trying to get stuff done. Um, and I realized the other day that I'm doing basically all the same things I did when I was supposed to be working on my thesis for the last month, just without the guilt now. <laughs> like, my life has not changed very much at all. It's just, you know, equally unproductive, but I don't feel guilty about it anymore. Well, that's a positive change. It is. I feel great. <laughs> yeah, my problem has been my general routine of... Go like waking up at four thirty, oh leaving the house at five fifty, getting what to school nightmare. around six forty-five, <laughs> um, teaching some willing students that are willing to come half an hour before school to play trombone or trumpet or a little bit of drums, whatever. Like and then getting into the minutia of the school day, and then like I teach at the high school for half. I go to teach at the um, lower elementary, and then teaching after school lessons until generally like six or seven at night. But it's, it's a very like structured, I feel fine about it. I don't feel like I'm overworking myself or anything, but it is 
that's what I'm used to. And so in a way it wasn't spring break for me, but it was like I took a spring break last week where I was a little more laid back about things. I ate a couple more snacks. (laughs) My day started a little bit later, but this Mm -hmm. week I've gotten more into the habit of like wake up. I called a different friend other than you two the other morning just to talk and have coffee with them. And then read like some of Daniel Harrison's book, got into the articles that we were reading and I don't know. Just other general you're making, things. Yeah, you're still making much better use of time than I am. Yeah, you're just generally productive, I feel like. Yeah. And I am generally unproductive, and so this only makes things worse. I have oh, books I that mean, I want to read. I, bo- I have books I thought I would read, and I haven't touched them. Yeah. To be fair, I mean, though, I have got, I've gotten through, like, three audiobooks, and that's just because I'm able to listen for part of the time that I'm at work, but, like... I feel productive, even though I haven't really done anything. I've listened to like three audiobooks in the last week. Yeah, I don't. I right now I'm trying to get through the last book in the Inheritance Cycle. <laughs> oh, um, it's the worst one. We can make a whole <laughs> podcast about that. I mean, I don't want to. <laughs> no, I don't either. It's bad. It's bad. The other three books are fine. They're not good, but they're fine. This one's just—it's awful. Um, it's enjoyable if. If we're being honest, as I'm currently playing D&D, it feels very much like somebody was either playing D&D or doing that and basically just wrote down what happened in the campaign. Mm-hmm. Like, now, have, it you, does... have you noticed the similarities between the Inheritance series and Star Wars? No, but, I mean, I wasn't necessarily looking for it. Yeah, well, a farm boy intercepts secret plans or something that he shouldn't. He goes and asks the weird old man about him, and the weird old man wants to help him get connected to the revolution. They escape the town after the bad guys burn down his family's farm and kill his uncle. They escape, they find a uh, like a more rough-and-tumble guy than them, and they rescue a princess along the way, and then they go and they meet the rebels, and then they have a fight with the rebels, and he explodes a big like gem at the end of the book. Then in the second book, he finds out that there actually is one more dragon rider who he goes and lives in the woods with for training, and also that the bad guy is related to him. So you're just, I mean, what I'm getting is Shakespeare didn't write every plot and storyline already. It's Disney. Disney has already Well, this done is, this is pre-Disney, so George Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. And, no. you know, everybody they, says, they like, it's just... Him. It's just Joseph Campbell's, you know, uh, a hero of a thousand faces. It's just that. But it's not, because it's like point for point. Like, the pacing of it is exactly the same. I like the books. Uh, to be fair, I loved the books. And Star Wars ripoff they may be. They're very enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, for me, I wanted a very sci-fi thing. And I listened to the first two books in the Mortal Instrument series as I was driving mm-hmm. to work. Which was City of Bones and City of Ashes, I think, or City mm-hmm. of Glass. I forget which one. Um, they're quite enjoyable, too. The problem for me is they are, I mean, it's still that like young adult kind of a, maybe not as young adult as like the Percy Jackson series or something is, but it's v- like there's so much teen angst in there. And then yeah. that one is definitely 
targeted towards the teen angst of a uh, female character, which I get, except I didn't have those specific emotions right? of like the, why don't these boys like me? Ooh, I like the bad boy. It wasn't that. I, I me, felt that was... way, but only because everyone was mean to me. <laughs> now, mine was more of like, kind of, it seemed to be like focused on one person at a time and like, I wonder if they'll ever like me. And then just kind of get stuck there. And that seems to be more of the, like, the Percy Jackson series, at least just because I've reread it recently, is the one that I'm like, yeah, he does seem to be focused on, like, one person. And we're waiting for that one person to tell him yes or no, like, the majority of the book. So that happens that in is how book I, too. That is how I live my childhood. But, um... Livy, mm-hmm. I feel like you got left out of the Star Wars talk. Did you have anything to add? Uh, no. No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, did you guys, as we were reading through these articles, were there any general trends? I feel like the the topic that each of them were looking at was very different, so that... Um, plateau loops and hybrid tonics which will be part four of this that one was looking at popular music um i specifically remember Coldplay and some other things mm-hmm. that was talking about tonics but more of suggested tonics because you are not if you only use chords like four five and six hey 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 hey, let's not we're we're honestly getting into like my only comments on this so let's save it (laughs) yeah let's let's let's, stay in your lane my friend so for our only comments on that feel free to jump to part four yeah but um beavers was looking at how ravel uses novelty in his music and it she gets towards some narrative things but there were there were some things that I really appreciated her treatment of those narrative terms and other things, um, and then the first one that we're going to talk about after this is the Barbara Blige three multifaceted compositions, which was jazz theory heavy, and I I've read through that one this morning at seven o'clock, and <laughs> even though I've been reading some theory things that one was tough to take down well just 7 a.m is not it's not jazz hours yet <laughs> have to wait till the sun like, goes down a little bit before you're really gonna understand a jazz article i mean in amsterdam the sun probably was down so she's so she works in... at the conservatory over there gotcha <laughs> just just if we didn't know what that was a reference to that was <laughs> Yeah, because she's at the Amsterdam Conservatory. Huh, I think there's somebody that I used in my thesis I wanted to talk to from there, but not her. My general comment is that I haven't read anything theory-related for the last year, and oh my goodness, these kicked my butt. Like, <laughs> I just, it, like, it was fine, and honestly, it felt really nice to, like, be reading uh, any sort of theory material again but like I just forgot how long it takes me to read these like especially things that I'm not as familiar with like uh, the one that Seth I'd agree with that the one that uh, Seth focused on and that I don't remember if that's going to be second or 
third. That's going to be uh, part three of this. Okay, yeah, so the part three article, like, oh my gosh. I just had to, like, keep going back. I was like, it was just so outside of my wheelhouse, and then I hadn't read anything in ages, and just, oof. <laughs> yeah, well, so it was real funny for me because, unfortunately, I seem to... the like big thoughts that I had about each piece started to just become about my interest in narrative theory and other things, but, Mm -hmm. but not really so that I found that in a weird way, it was like each article was really talking about how do we find and identify tonics or like centers to the piece. Yeah. I don't think you're that far off at that. But it was just, it was one of those, as I was reading them and reflecting on them, it was like, is it seems odd that that's where we would be getting as far as, like, big thoughts of what we have to define. But I guess that kind of makes sense. And then, but I couldn't also figure out if that was just because I'm reading Pieces of Tradition by Daniel Harrison, and there's like a, yeah... Yeah, we got to rethink about how we look at all of these things because really it's like some same concepts carried throughout history and we're pretending like it's a brand new thing. And so that's what I was going to say about not necessarily the jazz article, but the article that you and I looked at, Seth, um, they seem to be linked not in their content, but more in their philosophy of we're just making it up as we go along. Uh, it just Mine was about like redefining a weird sort of tonic that's like completely made up and mm-hmm. Seth's was about like reinterpreting timbral spaces as like I don't know I don't know I, I think as timbre has been undervalued or underanalyzed for a while and then to like put it on an equal footing with other stuff mm-hmm. it's just well, it's a really fuzzy place to work in and we'll get more into this but the I personally have an issue with topics i mean i don't have an issue with it but if i if i have to rely on them then i don't feel like it's the strongest analysis that i could do because i'm relying on someone else having the same set of cultural values and experiences that i had to understand what that sounds like and then you get into a very subjective nature of things but as i was listening to the piece you talked about and i was thinking about what she was really trying to say it was one of those if because i was taking timbre from a registral standpoint so that the timbre of the high end of a cello sounds very different than the low end or the middle right and so he like my thought was that are we just going to talk about highs and lows on instruments define sections and it didn't seem that crazy but then really how she's using it was like a topic but without the stuff that i don't like about topics and okay, so time out. and yeah time out. sorry i think we should just move into talking about the articles <laughs> like i think we're just in it now okay then let's talk about livy's article livy okay. tell us about uh Leisha's article uh i guess first Let's just 
collectively apologize if that's the wrong pronunciation of her name. We're not sure. I tried to look I it up. I assume it is, and I feel really bad about it. Yeah, I tried to look it up, but it wasn't For sure. consistencies, we'll go with bleach. Apologies to everybody if that's wrong. Um, so I should have the full title. I have like a shorthand title here in front of me. It's three, three multifaceted mm-hmm. compositions by Wayne Shorter, ESP, mm-hmm. Infinize, and Virgo. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, it took all three of us to get through that title. Yeah. Good thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's why you need three of us. <laughs> so you don't just, have two ones in the hour sets. You have three two ones. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sometimes seven though. So who can we replace? Can we? Do you have a seven? Doesn't it have to start at eight? No, I meant, sorry, I meant like three, seven, one. Oh, okay. But only that by substitution and implication of two. Yeah. Never mind. Because two is still the most important, <laughs> not seven. Right. So your my article. Yeah. Yes, the, the article. Yeah. I'm very excited my to hear article. about the music of Mr. Wayne Shorter. Yeah. Uh, so just to summarize uh, what this article is and the general goal um, I could just call her Barbara, or that might be disrespectful. Bleach um, is analyzing three different compositions by Wayne Shorter, who is a jazz performer, composer. Um, he's a saxophonist, which was exciting for me to realize once I got into this article. Um, and he was coming up right um, as hard bop in the 50s kinds of transitioned into more I don't know the right term but like post-bop that's what it is post-bop um going into the 60s like as Miles Davis put out some really influential stuff um and some other people sorry jazz history isn't great but so um Wayne Shorter was uh kind of at his heyday right around then composing wise and so she takes three significant compositions by him which are the ones named in the title you have ESP, which is the title track on Miles Davis's second quintet album, which was an influential album, and this is the title track, so that in itself makes it influential. And then um, you've got Infinize and you've got Virgo, which are still all regarded as influential in sort of the jazz repertoire generally. And she, one of the things that I found the most interesting about this article. Um, is just that she talks about taking an analytical approach to each of these pieces individually, which um, I'm not super well-read on jazz theory, but as she describes it, that's not all that common. Um, It's more of like people look at, I guess, general trends or composers' repertoires at large. Um, It's not as common to go just in-depth on single pieces, which is kind of the standard in Western art music. Um, and she's saying that it's just as valuable to go in depth in single pieces in jazz theory, at least for the purpose of analyzing Wayne Shorter and kind of the um, styles that he is representing yeah. in his music. And so I thought that was really cool because she's just not only making points about his works, but she's saying this is an analytical approach that we should start taking because it's valuable. Yeah. Um, another another point that she's making in her approach is that uh, there have been other theorists who've looked at Wayne Shorter's compositions, but she, mostly they've been paying attention to harmony. She points out 
um, exceptions to that, but largely the focus has been on harmony and she takes more of an integrative, integrated approach where she's looking at multiple um, components and how they work together and how that influences the harmony and especially how it lets us understand ambiguous harmonies. She can get a, a sort of more concrete analysis by taking a lot of stuff into consideration. Um, and so that's kind of the general intro that she puts out into her article. And then she gets into her three analyses, which is where it started to lose me, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, so I'll go over she, the order that she analyzes them is ESP and then Infant Eyes and then Virgo. I thought I got the most out of ESP. And so I'm going to save that one for last. Um, cause honestly, my, I, I was taking notes throughout this and Infant Eyes and Virgo, it's really, <laughs> it's, uh, very much just like a basic summary just because it was a lot of jazz theory and I'm just not that well read on it. I don't know about you guys, but like, as soon as you get into, yeah, as soon as you get into like, and this is the kind of typical like tritone substitution and the typical resolution down. And I'm like, I don't know about those. <laughs> so so uh, for me, as I was reading it, one of the one of the tough things that I started to realize was jazz is like the merger of a couple different things, and it's this was well, news to you. I mean, no, but. <laughs> <laughs> it was more of the realization because like as we were in 20th century class together and we were talking about you know these jazz artists knew of 12 tone rows and all these other things and that while not always necessarily like following strict 12 tone row counterpoint or whatever that they knew of it and they definitely were implementing it on some level as I was reading through the articles, looking at just um, the like first examples she would throw up in most of the pieces and kind of show you like, here's the chord progression and she would give you um, uh, lead sheets, lead sheets to look at. And so you would see the chords and you would see the melody and it looks 20th century. And it's, in some ways sounds like that kind of like if you listen to our episodes from a little bit ago talking about albums that Livy and Adam had picked in some ways they were similar to you get like sounds that you're supposed to kind of recognize and like come back to but it's less strict common practice harmonies where it's here's the triad and you're following it it's much more open to exposing different harmonies and other things. And like in some of the quotes she pulled from Wayne Shorter, he's talking about shapes more than he's talking about harmonies. Mm -hmm. And it seems vague, but in some ways that it made a lot of sense to me because looking at the music, you can kind of see, yeah, it's these like general shapes that keep repeating and get you to the next chord. And so it, it ended up being more about you could have a more abstract 20th century sound, but then how you get from one 
like measure to the next or a pair of measures to the next two, there might be some counterpoint voice leading that was kind of that like common practice. And so that part was like what brought you back in. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, there's absolutely overlap there, I think. I don't, I think you would have to like look up kind of each composer's relationship to those techniques in like a common practice sense, but just in terms of like jazz was getting more experimental with tonality and so was common practice and so there's some overlap there. And then the voice leading stuff is what I like the most, but uh, I was going to save that part for last. (laughs) Just because it's the, it's, no, it's okay. It's just, that was the one that like kind of, I got the most out of it, but like, so let me just real quick skim over Infidize and Virgo. And if y'all have more to add, by all means, because again, this was super basic. Um, so her analysis of Infinize is she focuses on repetition and transposition and how that shapes the piece um, and focusing on like the form, which is shaped largely through repetition. Um, but then also she talks about some ambiguous ambiguity surrounding the key. Um, she argues that the key is in B flat, um, despite three flats showing up throughout the lead sheet, which would imply E flat. Um, and essentially she reduces the melody of Infinize down to these core notes that she identifies within repetitions. Um, they're longer, so she identifies them um, as the more important to the background structure. And once she reduces the melody down to that, she finds that it's pretty standard blues. Um, and she uses that as a basis of saying, okay, well, if this is in the melody, let's see if we can apply this to other parts of the music. And so she's kind of saying like, let's take a liberty here and say, even though it's not maybe jumping out at us in the harmony, let's go with what we're seeing in the melody and see if we can apply it. And what she ends up finding is that um, harmonically, uh, she finds another pretty strong association with like standard blues, which is that each section in the form is ending with a pretty strong one, four, one, which is standard in blues. I didn't know that, so I'm just taking your word for it. But um, again, I know nothing about jazz, it's so sad, but um, she's able to then use that to explain some deviations in the transpositions that happen within the form, like the repetitions ABA and like the B is transposed and whatnot. There's a few deviations which she's able to explain with like, this is the flat three and the flat five and the flat seven that's in blues and like we can explain it that way. Um, And then also there's a modulation to um, the subdominant in the B section that's not very straightforward at all. But if you're looking at it from a blues approach, she says that it checks out. And so she's able to kind of tie all of these ideas together to support really ambiguous aspects within each kind of component, like the melody, the harmony, the form and whatnot. Like, because a big thing in uh, Shorter's music that she identifies is that sometimes it's really conventional and then there's these moments where it breaks convention and it can be hard to analyze. But what she did here was like, she found this sort of core concept in the melody of like a standard blues progression. And then she just kind of 
tried applying it to these different components and found that they all ended up connecting. And she was able to kind of, even though in some points it's less conventional or it's less straightforward, she was able to say, this follows a pretty standard blues for the most part. And that is as in-depth as I got on Infant Eyes. <laughs> and I might have butchered it. <laughs> One thing it has in common with uh, the article that I looked at was like hard to place uh, tonic centers, like tonal centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're like sometimes yeah. interacting with chords in different ways than you would expect. That's just a similarity that both of our articles share. Definitely. Um, I think that that's a big thing in Virgo as well. Although, to be honest, I got even less in-depth in Virgo. That might have been the one I was thinking of. I can't remember. Virgo is the one which she analyzes as being an homage to Coltrane. Oh, yeah. I wanted to talk yeah. about how this uh, groundbreaking expose reveals that Dwayne Shorter was just ripping off Coltrane. <laughs> uh, I wanted to get your opinion on that, on this she... hard-hitting new information. I think that the word homage was very purposeful. It's because she says that it's not even that she he's quoting him directly, although there's there's a few things you could call quotes, but like it's not that it's full of quotes. It's that he's taking this concept, which to explain it real quick, Virgo, she says in the opening motive, there's this descending fifth that gets t- transposed. And um, she's able to analyze this underlying model underneath those fifths um, that results in the, an equal division of the octave in the major thirds. And that is a reference to giant steps, which is like a mm-hmm. standard rep piece by Coltrane. And so then um, she's able to use that model that it's giant steps and that there's this underlying idea of major thirds dividing the octave, as well as that perfect fifth motive to explain some ambiguous progressions, just like she did in Infant Eyes with the blues. Um, But she says particularly that he's not just like quoting Coltrane, he's taking this one idea and he's turning it into his own thing. So I don't think we can say he's ripping off Coltrane. So you wouldn't say this is a groundbreaking expose? I wouldn't say it's that much of a hot take. Oh man, that's like all I have for this article. (laughs) I'm just Uh, here for the drama. Yeah, I think I think she would have, I don't know, could have made it a lot more juicy if it was an expose. <laughs> but it really felt more of like a, hey, this is this is kind of alluding to giant steps. Let's run with it. I don't know. I I feel like we should you know file the petition, start the lawsuit of, <laughs> like just have you know posthumously on behalf Col- on behalf of, of Coltrane. Coltrane. Yeah, <laughs> just claim all of Shorter's music as Coltrane's music. I really think that, yeah, that's our place. I think that that's... <laughs> we figured out yeah. what our podcast is. We figured yeah. out what it is yeah. that we do. <laughs> it's just... It's, uh, uh, it's journaling the experience of applying for the lawsuit and all of these other things. It's like cereal, but for ripping off John Coltrane. We could be <laughs> the next cereal. I'm all in. Yeah. And or not. Or not. We just um, get extremely litigious very quickly. <laughs> I was going to say, so far we've had trouble staying on like a general podcast schedule, so I don't even know that we could get it together to get all of that Start done. a legal campaign? Yeah, probably. It would yeah. be a bit of a challenge. Um, did you guys have any other thoughts on Infinizer Virgo? 
because that's all I got. It was so jazz heavy. To anyone listening who loves jazz theory, go read it. You'll get so much more out of it than I was able to present. But well, so much and, of it uh, went over my head. Yeah, and I'm with Livy on that. My thing is when we go through these undergrad courses and even graduate courses that helps us better understand for the most part the common practice period that when you say a major chord i have an idea of what that's supposed to sound like when you say minor chord i'm good diminished augmented like i can hear those as i'm saying them Mm -hmm. but and so that when i get to an analysis of you know, Schubert, Schumann, Beethoven, like a lot of that 1650 to uh, like early, early 20th century, I'm pretty good as far as if you tell me this interval against this and this chord, I can follow it. But as far as, yeah, here's what an F major nine going to an E flat diminished 13th should sound like and like I just I don't have the reference point mm-hmm. for it to hear it and so which in a weird way is like it's goes back to that topic concept of what cultural values do you have and you know the intended listener or intended audience that a lot of this is for a jazz theory intended audience and so that those that have studied jazz long enough to know here's what all of these symbols sound like and here's these standard progressions that you come across that's going to make a ton of sense to them and I think that they'll thoroughly enjoy it mm-hmm. uh, I mean it was an enjoyable art- article for music theorists anyways I'm not necessarily saying if you're not a music theorist go out and read it today mm-hmm. but I would, I would agree with Livy that the introduction through ESP, ESP, I think most people could get through that if they were interested in Wayne Shorter and mm-hmm. wanted to hear a little bit about his music. Yeah, and it's not to say that you, it's not to say that I didn't get meaning out of Infinizer Virgo. It's just that there's a lot of technical points that she makes that just don't mean as much to me because they're, it's like jazz language and. I'm more of like common practice language. That's what resonates with me. But to get into ESP, on like the other hand, um, even though it's still very jazz heavy, there's still a lot of technical jazz, um, it focuses more on voice leading, which is something that I think if you've been through like music theory courses, you've interacted with voice leading on either a basic level or a more advanced level. and she gets into like background, middle ground, foreground, all that kind of stuff, like in a general sense, not strict Shankarian. She specifies, she's not doing this from like a strictly Shankarian standpoint, but like in that way, I was all in because I was like, ooh, that's what I like. It is not strictly Shankarian uh, voice leading. It's like my thing. And it so. It uses so much Shankarian terminology though. I thought it was weird seeing it in this context. Yeah, to be fair, that's the point that one of our professors made about my thesis, which is that he was like, you're using this term, but it's not Shankarian. And I was like, I know, but I don't have a better term. So maybe that was her reasoning as well. 
Um, yeah, and so going off of that point back to tonics in general is that tonic in like the 1800s or 17 or 1600s that would mean one thing but I think where the term has to go is that instead of it meaning a traditional one chord root triad that it's evolving to tonic could just mean the center of the piece and so that could be a shape it could be a specific sound it could be a specific pitch class like there's what tonic could be i think is evolving yeah i I think think there's people pushing the forefront of what are we thinking about that as but kind of to what you guys just said that it is odd to see terms that we're used to like that in new settings and you like you have to let go of this is what it meant once upon a time similar to how the jazz musicians Wayne Shorter, Miles Davis and others they're not focused on okay did I play my like blues progression exactly right they're more worried about yeah I've got the shape and that shape is going to be what I'm going to continue to do and take that new places and I'll return to it using it as a quasi tonic mm-hmm. the article that I looked at has a really really interesting conversation um, discussion I guess there's only one person um, discussion <laughs> about how we use the word tonic and tonal centers in like function versus category um, mm-hmm. that we can talk about later but just yeah mm-hmm. related to this very yeah similar. there's a lot of um, consideration of terminology and the arc preconceptions of different theory things in various contexts maybe that's like a running theme in this volume of MTO because it kind of ran through all of our articles well yeah and that's what that's what I thought was funny about our all of our articles was I guess because I didn't... I th- was there one more or two more that we didn't get to? I think there was one more article and then there were like two reviews. I could be wrong, yeah. but... <clears throat> I think that sounds right. Um, but it was just one of those like... It was odd how on the smallest level, you know, the foreground, they all seem very different. But the as you proceeded to the background material that it was like, hmm... There's a larger point here that it seems like these are all connected and you wouldn't have necessarily understood that going in. Yeah, I agree. Um, and That was me incorporating some Shanker terms yeah, in new ways. Which <laughs> leads us into her analysis of ESP, which is the first one in the article, but because I think we've all probably related to it the most, wanted to save it for last. It's, it, it was my... Uh, it's the juiciest in my note-taking, for sure. Um, actually had, like, thoughts on it. So, her... To summarize her analysis, um, she points out that previous analyses of this work focus largely on harmony. Um, there's, there was even, like, a small debate. Um, two theorists felt that it was in F major... Um, later, another theorist says that that's debatable, um, particular, particularly because there's this focus on an uh, E-altered chord, which normally, if you're focusing on that, wouldn't really say F-Ionian. That's the point he's making. Um, 
And so in this article, I forgot even how we were pronouncing her name. Blaise? What did we say? I said Blige. Blige. Okay. Blige. I want to be consistent if we're going to be wrong at least. Um, Blige, she agrees with the earlier theorists that think this piece is in F major. Um, but she argues that beyond just looking at the chords, there's this other element to the music that is just as significant as the harmony and that actually supports her analysis of the harmony being in F major. And that second element is the voice leading in within the melody. And so the piece begins melodically with um, stacked fourths that are centered on G. So uh, D up to G, G up to C. And so the perfect fourth stays central within the melody, um, and but shorter starts filling in the fourths with like a second here, a third there. But the fourths are still present and they're still prominent. Um, and so, Bleach. I keep forgetting, Bleach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's how we've committed. To I saying. looked it up. I looked it up, and it's Blaze. Blaze. Okay. I'll stop being consistent. We'll go with the correct one, Blaze. Thanks, Adam. Um, so Blaze uh, identifies these pitches that he's using to fill in the fourths as um, they they're coming in in pairs. And she views these pairs as an unfolding of the original fourths, like in the middle ground or the background. I don't think she specifically says, but um, on the foreground, they're like these accented notes, but in the background, they're unfolding on that DGC stacked fourths. So for example, um, upwards, it's extending from G to C up to F, B flat, E flat, going downward, same thing, G down to D, A, E, B. And so um, those are introduced in pairs, like you get A and F, you get E and B flat, you get B and E flat. Um, and so you get this voice leading model that's underlying under the whole melody. And now from there, she's able to take that and explain some of the less conventional harmonies that are happening, um, particularly the fact that the bass notes um, or the roots of the chords of the harmony are filling in, she describes it as the chromatic space between the pitches G and D flat. So the chord roots are filling in that space. And it centers on E natural, which again, ties us back to that E7 chord that introduces the piece that one of the theorists felt um, undermined an analysis of it being in F. And so she's getting this sort of contradicting um, tonal center within the harmony, but by using that voice leading model, she's able to relate it. So she expands the model of the unfolding fourths all the way out using all 12 pitches. And what she ends up with um, is that the final, it ultimately ends, if you unfold that out, it ultimately ends on D flat. And so you can look at where it starts centered on G and where it ends on D flat, that ties you, and that's in the melody, it ties you back into the harmony where the chromatic space is between G and D flat. And then also that explains um, the prominence of E. I'm trying to, I had a note about how it specifically ties that back in. Um, essentially, it's just that that ties in the G to D flat, which is centered on E. And so that explains the prominence of the E. Um, 
but that ultimately the fact that it ties them in together allows her to support her analysis of it being an F. The prominence of E is just a result of a harmony which is following the voice leading, not because E is tonic, if that makes sense. I feel like I kind of spoke circularly there for a second, but essentially the fact that it's all working together helps support mm -hmm. an analysis that it's an F. And that the unusual elements, like the chord extensions, the um, melodic sort of accent, accentual pitches, if you want to call them that, um, those are all explained within the voice leading. You don't have to completely shift gears and say, those are redefining where tonic is. You can go back to the voice leading, and it explains it. My favorite quote in the article um, is not a quote from her, it's a quote from Shorter himself, mm -hmm. where he talks about how he tried to write something that didn't sound academic and clinical. <laughs> and he's like, I guess you could do that if, like, I guess you could analyze it if you really wanted to, but like, that's not what I was going for. And then she completely breaks it all down, shows how there's this exact mm -hmm. pattern and function and structure to it, and then still includes the quote, the quote where he says you shouldn't do it like that. That's a, it's a very bold move. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I guess, to me, that's almost how it shows that him, along with. Um, peers of his in the jazz community are on a different level of thinking through their music where yes there are reoccurring patterns and other things that happen because they are able to do that and catch on to oh you're using the fourths like this well if I took that to completion in this what would happen but it's a lot of just being able to recognize okay, here's what we're doing. How do we all take that same kind of motive or something and, you know, spin it out even further? Mm -hmm. Are you saying they had ESP? Oh, I mean, gosh. that's what I was getting at without saying it. Oh, I see, I see. Nice. <laughs> Actually, I was going to make that joke, but then I, I felt like I needed to finish my train of thought, and <laughs> you just, you beat me back to it. Nice. <laughs> So just to, I was going to say, um, even though that's like the analysis I got the most out of, uh, even my summary of it just there did it no justice. There's so much more like technical um, analysis that's in there. So definitely if you like voice leading, um, it's, it's hard for me to explain as not a jazz theorist, but it wasn't too hard to read. So... Um, if you're interested in voice leading, definitely go check out her analysis within the article. Um, I think it's it's pretty approachable even for a non-jazz person. At least that analysis is. Yeah, well, and uh, there, I appreciated the article for it really made me start to think different thoughts. And so, like... And some of hers, which I think this is the one that it came from, because this is the one that starts out the GDC, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that at some point, I have example nine written down, but she's written out all her notes. And when I looked at it, I was like, this really looks like a 12-tone row. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it's not one of those, it's not a nice perfect one where it's like 
zero one four a bunch of times or you know something. but it's still in that area if you look yeah, at it it's, that way it's like real close and mm-hmm. it is it's they're generally you could make a case for like a lot of these are fourths ish apart mm-hmm. if you're if you want to be like kind of vague with that but mm-hmm. i i guess maybe that's what shorter was getting at is that he like they're in i would say it's it's like serial music but it was a little bit nicer yeah and i think i was gonna say i know a lot of people have taken like set theory and applied it to jazz musicians in this era um at least i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure i sat through a paper on that at smt so i feel bad if i'm misspeaking but i think one thing that sets this particular one apart is the significance that those fourths are introduced in pairs that specifically extend that voice leading upwards and downwards you know what i mean like if they weren't introduced in pairs that made it so significant that it's like this one is a perfect fourth above the last one and this one's a perfect fourth below below the last one and it's presented at the same time we know it's meant to go together i think you could make an argument that like you could look at it with set theory but then the fact that they're presented together to me sells the voice leading thing so so well i don't know if i stated that clearly but like i think the set theory thing makes sense and you could go that direction with this but i think in a lot of cases you couldn't have such a clean voice leading model that she finds in this one but because he's presenting them um presenting the pairs so clearly together i think that it sells her voice leading model really well yeah i guess i wasn't necessarily going that direction i was going more of like if if you were following like 12 tone or serialism music like to the t and saying here's all the rules it has to follow mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily sound good <laughs> yeah. it's like shorter <laughs> was in the ballpark and then he went you know well this would sound better yeah and then he did that and and so i guess in some ways you know baroque music's fine to me people mm-hmm. are allowed to like it and have different opinions I don't particularly (laughs) care for it. Yeah. Um, And I, like, classical, again, is fine. But I really enjoy romantic and the further we're getting towards the 20th century when you allow those allowances and the pushing of the mold and other things. And so, to me, this is just the next step in, well, yeah, I'm kind of using the system that we've set forth but I'm allowed to push the edge because I thought this would sound better. And so I did that Mm -hmm. instead of following a strict, you know, concept of here's what I'm going to do. I guess, Mm -hmm. I guess in some ways it would be like if you, an etude is the practice of doing something, but then you're thinking of my creative side. Like there are, other things that are very strategic that are to me are almost more etude in nature whereas this would be 
okay, what if I took that skill that I'm developing and put it into practice to make something that was meant to be like, enjoyable to listen to, that mm-hmm. would be it. Yeah. Again, with all that being said, not that you can't get an experience of some kind out of zero music, you know, because you can, it just, to me, jazz is just easier to listen to. It's a little more enjoyable to listen to. Mm-hmm. No, I get all that. I think that, you know, that could be spot on. We don't really know what what Shorter was thinking when he did it. Maybe that's, like, exactly what he was thinking. I mean, I thought he was just trying to rip off John Coltrane. Hot take. That's what I'm saying. Hot take. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, uh, Adam, did you have anything else to add? No, I'm sorry. I was absent a little bit on that one. I just didn't have anything to say. I, no, that's I will okay. say I enjoyed I enjoyed listening to it. I listened to it while I was reading the article. I followed her mm-hmm. lead sheets and listened. It was very enjoyable. As somebody who doesn't like, you know, listen to a lot of jazz music, it was like, yeah, I get it. All right, cool. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I hadn't heard, well, I hadn't like purposefully looked and listened to Wayne Shorter. I'd probably heard him like with Miles Davis, you know, but... Um, I hadn't looked up him specifically, but I asked one of my friends uh, from undergrad who jazz is his thing. And I asked him, I was like, I'm sure you know Wayne Shorter. Like, do you have any thoughts? Like, I'm reading this article about him. And uh, I mean, he said he really liked him. He's great. But then he also sent me this video, which um, I don't have a title for you, but I'm sure you could find it if you look up Neil deGrasse Tyson and Wayne Shorter. Mm-hmm. So Neil deGrasse Tyson explains to him like a photon, um, how like the sun takes hundreds of years to get a photon to the surface of the sun, and then it takes like eight minutes to get to Earth. And basically, Neil deGrasse Tyson was like, "What do you get out of that? Like, do you get music out of that?" And then Wayne Shorter plays his interpretation um, on the saxophone, and I don't want to ruin it for you, but it's. It's quite, it's quite, uh, what's the word? Um, Insightful? um, Revolutionary? I'm trying to think, like, it's very kind of like, okay. (laughs) Out there. Out there. Out there is a great term. Um, It's it's just like, uh, he's like on another level. He's on another plane that I'm not on. But you should look up that video, everybody. It's, It's pretty entertaining. I think it gives you a good sense of uh, Wayne Shorter. My friend, I like, when I responded to it, my friend was like, oh yeah, that's what I thought you'd say. Because <laughs> my take was just, uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Um, let's wrap up. Oh, how did we say her name? Was it, it was more Blage. than A, right? Blage. Blage. So Barbara Blage, um, just a little bit about her. She was born in 1965. She's a pianist and theorist. She studied at the Conservatory of Amsterdam and holds degrees in jazz piano and classical music theory along with jazz theory. Um, She's the co-founder of the Dutch Journal of Music Theory, which is currently Music Theory and Analysis. And she was the editor from 1996 to 2007, and formerly the president of the Dutch Flemish Society for Music Theory. Um, and currently, she's teaching at the Conservatory in Amsterdam. 
Do we need to talk about all that? I just thought it, like, our listeners might be interested. They may not, but I figured we were reviewing her article, so we might as well, you know, talk about her a little bit, I guess. Okay, that's fine. And I didn't necessarily have a better place for that information to go, so. It's true. All right, so we're moving on to Dr. Beavers. Yes. All right, so. Tell uh, the people goodbye, then. (laughs) <laughs> and tell them we're going to be back next time with Dr. Beavers. Okay. All right, guys. Thanks for stopping by. We're going to be back next time with Dr. Jennifer Beavers on Beyond Mere Novelty. Mm-hmm.